Okay, we're glad that you're here. And verses 1 through 11 told Israel that the end of every seven years, debts were to be forgiven. Uh, and if they were faithful in doing this, there would be no poor among them. And they're not to use that seventh year as a reason not to show generosity. Uh, we pick up in the middle of that idea in verses 12 through 18. What these verses deal with is a connected concept that if you had a Hebrew slave, he was to serve you for six years. And the seventh year, he was to go free. You were to provide for him liberally so that he did not leave empty-handed. Let's begin in Deuteronomy 15, reading verses 12 through 18. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this today. It shall come about... If he says to you, I will, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he fares well with you, then you shall take it all and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. And you shall do likewise to your maidservant. And it shall, it shall not seem hard to you when you set him free, for he uh, shall... He has given you six years with double the service of a hired man, so the Lord your God will bless you in whatever you do. Now, the legislation that's given here in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 18, about freeing of the Israelite slaves or the Hebrew slaves, this information was also given to us earlier in Exodus 21 really verses 1 through 11 verses 1 through 6 deal with it very closely and also verses uh, all everything to verse 11 uh, ties with this particular subject so he is to serve you for six years and the seventh year you are to set him free. You notice that that word set free is used quite frequently there, uh, particularly in verses 12 and 13. They were not only to let him go and let him go without owing anything, but they were to give to him generously. As they let this servant go, they were to remember that they themselves were servants. They themselves had been slaves in the land of Egypt. And the Lord had showed generosity to them. And therefore, they are to show generosity to others. 
Uh, By the way, there is a way to avoid this if the slave voluntarily says, I don't want to leave, I don't want to go. Then provisions could be made, as verses 16 and 17 show, to be a servant for life. I want you to notice that this kind of slavery that was practiced in the land of Israel was such that a person may want to remain in that situation. Now, we do have a comment on this passage elsewhere in the Old Testament. And I ask you to look up Jeremiah 34. Jeremiah 34, because Jeremiah 34, verses 8 through 22, shows us a picture of how Israel responded to the law in Deuteronomy chapter 15. In Jeremiah 34, it is the time of Zedekiah. What do you remember about Zedekiah, king of Judah? Okay, he lost his eyes. Yes, he does. And uh, he's the last one. And this is at the end of Israel's history before captivity. And I want you to notice uh, all of this section, particularly verses 8 through 16, really hit this particular law Hard, but I want you to notice verse 13, especially verses 13, 14, and 15. It says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you shall set free. His Hebrew brother, who has been sold to you and has served you six years, you shall send him out free from you. I want you to listen to the next line. But your forefathers did not obey me or incline their ear to me. Let me ask you a question. Did Israel generally obey that law or not? They didn't. He says, your forefathers did not listen. They did not incline their ear. They did not listen to the things that I instructed them. However, there had recently been a turn of events in verse 15. Although recently you had turned and done what is right in my sight, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name, yet you turned and profaned my name, and each man took back his male servant, and each man his female servant, whom he had set free according to their desire. And you brought them into subjection to be your male servants and your female servants. Let me try to reconstruct this situation. Again, let me encourage you to read that passage in Jeremiah 34 because what I'm saying is based on this passage. But what had happened is that Babylon had laid siege 
to the city of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem knew they were in a serious condition. And they were appealing to God to help, throwing themselves upon His mercy. But perhaps in the midst of that, they recognized that if we're going to ask God to listen to us, we better be listening to Him. And they decided that they were going to put away their Hebrew slaves. They had served them six years. They were going to let them go the seventh year just as the Lord instructed. But the Babylonians then withdrew from the city. And when they withdrew from the city, the text says they violated the oath they had made before the Lord and they took back their male and female servants that they had declared free, that they had emancipated. They took them back. God says because of that, I'm going to bring Babylon back. And they're going to destroy you because you have disobeyed me, particularly in regard to this particular command. But we are not always given a history of each commandment and how Israel listened to it. But we are right here. And what we're told is not good news. That they were not obedient to the covenant that God gave them. Any questions right there about that? Sarah? Um, in verse 18 it talks about he has given you six years of double the service of a hired man. Yeah. Is that... What does that mean? I didn't know if it meant something like... Yeah. As a See, that, that's the problem with letting you people ask questions. Because I, I don't know for sure either. And, and there is a lot of dispute about that. Some of your versions may have double the service of the hired man. Some of them may have half the service of the hired man. Some of them may have it's equal to the service of a hired man. Which logically, I think that third possibility makes no sense. That basically, you have been blessed with six years by his hard work and his hired labor, equal to the labor of a hired man. But there is a question about that phrase. Sarah, if it's used elsewhere, I, I'm not remembering it offhand. But there is big... Um, dispute about how to translate those words but equal to the service of a hired man may be better than double the service of a hired man I had just, whenever I was reading I was just wondering if it was like an admonition to the Hebrew who sells himself to be certain to work heartily and like that we find in the New Testament yeah, I, I understand that that is a biblical point you make. It does seem like these words here are addressed to the master and not to the servant. And so that would certainly fit the fact that the master is the one that's addressed in all of this um, would seem to make it an appeal to him. Yes, Mike? those that were 
in his servitude, right? Where, because it yeah. says in verse, uh, in verse 16 that if this person decides to stay, one of the reasons is because he has prospered well in yeah. transition. And so I think a lot of times you know, when we consider slavery, we go back to the American history where it was very ugly in many times. Yeah. It seems to be a totally different picture in this situation where the master had an obligation to, to, to treat his, especially the, the, the Hebrews, those of the same nation, to treat them properly to the point where these people may be not established. Yes. You could prosper enough in in slavery or in this servanthood that you could buy your own freedom. You see that in Leviticus 25. Largely, largely um, in this passage or or in the Old Testament, largely people who uh, were servants like this owed money to their master. And uh, which was the history of a lot of people who came to this country as well. Why? as well as black. They owed money and they worked off of debts in those ways. So they owed money, they were working this off basically. But yes, there is a responsibility to the master. Leviticus 25 verse 43 I'm looking at, you shall not rule over him harshly but you shall revere your God. Uh, There were certain ways they were to be treated and certain ways they were not to be treated. They were to be treated with reverence and respect and concern. And so, yes, it could have been something that they could have opted to stay in. And uh, that that is, is fascinating to discuss the big subject. And yet, even... Even here, after the Lord has said this, and the Lord has emphasized all I have done for you, and he's given you, he's worked so diligently for you these six years, let him go and let him go free. They wouldn't even let him go as a whole. Again, how hard-hearted we are and sometimes reluctant to listen to God. Now, in verse 19... You shall consecrate to the Lord your God all your firstborn males that are born of your herd or of your flock. You shall not work with the firstborn of your herd nor shear the firstborn of your flock. So you don't work with them in the field. You don't shear the animals. In verse 20, you and your household shall eat it every year before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. You're to bring the animal to the central temple, to the central sanctuary, to the temple to offer him before God. In verse 21, but if it has any defect such as lameness or blindness or serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. What if your firstborn that's supposed to be presented and dedicated to God has a, has a disqualification that would prevent it from being offered as a sacrifice. Then you don't sacrifice it. You take the animal, you kill the animal, you eat it within your gates. In verse 22, you shall eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean may eat of it as a gazelle or as a deer. It is considered... Um, a blessing that you share in and the people share in. In verse 23, only you shall not eat its blood. You are to pour it on the ground like water. 
Okay, let's go to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16, in verses 1 through 17, is going to give Israel's religious calendar. And there are three major feasts uh, of the Jews. It's calendar E-R-A-R. It's what? Hey, okay. Taking your word Religious calendar. Three major feasts in which all the males are to appear before God. What are those major feasts? Okay, first of all, you have Passover, and it is closely connected with unleavened bread. Then what is next? Yes, the Feast of Weeks. And that is called in the New Testament what? Pentecost. And then the Feast at the end of the year is called what? Feast of Booze. Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of... Uh, it's called all these things. Here it is called the Feast of Booths in verse 13. Feast of Booths. It is verses 16 and 17 are kind of a summary of these. Now, sometimes I get in the habit, and I imagine you do as well, I get in the habit, I know certain things from certain passages, and I imply them in a passage where they're not mentioned. Let me illustrate. If we just had Deuteronomy 16, do you realize we could not pin down the specific date of any of those things? And isn't that interesting? You cannot pin that down from Deuteronomy 16. You can from Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 gives us more information about uh, the specific dates of the feast and what happened on this day and what happened on that day. Numbers 28 and 29, what it tells us about is all the various sacrifices that were offered during those feasts. For example, this is a question that you numbers people will know. Um, which of these major feasts of the Jews had more sacrifices offered? There were, all, there were more bulls and more rams offered than were offered at any other time of year. What feast is that? Which? Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths. And you read that in Numbers 29. So all of these add some information. All of these tell us a little bit something that the others do not. I want to ask you, what does, and I want to read Deuteronomy 16, 1 through 8 here. What is Deuteronomy telling us that these passages are? These passages are very specific with other things, but Deuteronomy gives us some information they don't. In verse, verse 1, observe the month of Abib and celebrate it. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God 
In the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd. In the place the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall not eat unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with it unleavened bread. The bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, in order that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. For seven days no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory, and none of the flesh which you sacrifice on the evening of the first day shall remain overnight until morning. You're not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of the towns which the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish His name, you shall sacrifice the Passover in the, e- at the, in, in the evening at sunset at the time that you came out of Egypt you shall cook it and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses in the morning you are to return to your tents six days you shall eat unleavened bread on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God you shall not do any work on it now let's say we just have Deuteronomy to go by and you wanted to celebrate the Passover. When are you going to celebrate? There is one hint. What? A bit. Yes, the first month. It's going to be the first month. Now, it doesn't tell you what day of the month, does it? But Leviticus 23 does. The Passover, the Passover was what day of the first month? 14th day. First month. First month and the 14th day. Now, Passover was closely connected with unleavened bread, which began on the first month and the 15th through the 21st day. Now, the New Testament in a couple of places mentions Passover and unleavened bread almost interchangeably. If you want to write down Luke 22, verse 1 and 2, Acts 12, verses 3 and 4, Passover and unleavened bread are basically used interchangeably. So, Passover the 14th and first month, they remember that they were slaves in Egypt. I said there's something unique about all these accounts. Numbers 28 and 29 will tell us what animals the nation sacrificed on the various days of those feasts, that feast. But what, what is unique, particularly what do you see different here in Deuteronomy that's not been stressed? In the place the Lord your God chooses. This phrase, in the place the Lord chooses, the place the Lord chooses to establish his name. I'm kind of writing it up here in brief fashion, but that expression is used in 16 verse 2. In verses 5 and 6, 
You're not to celebrate it just in any of your towns, but in the place the Lord your God chooses. You see it in 7, you see it in 11, you see it in verse 15, you see it in verse 16. In all these places, the place the Lord your God chooses. Now this is different than the first Passover, wasn't it? First Passover, everyone stayed in their house and they put the blood on the doorpost of the house and they were not to leave that house until morning. That's in Exodus 12, the original Passover. But here they all made a journey to the central place the Lord has chosen, which will ultimately be Jerusalem. And when we're in the time of Jesus, the Jewish people are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, are there other details that you have questions about there? Because there are a couple of things we could say, but other things that you have a question about or a thought about, about verses 1 through 8. Anything? Notice to the language of verse 8, six days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly. What does it sound like to you? Yeah, it sounds like the Sabbath cycle. Six days eat no unleavened bread. Well, you don't eat it the seventh day either. Six days don't eat unleavened bread. But the seventh day, there's a solemn assembly. And on that seventh day, verse 8 says, you're not to do any work. Leviticus 23 goes into more detail with that. Now, also... Um, also be conscious of how many references there are to the Lord bringing the people out of Egypt in verses 1 through 8. But let's, let's see what's said about, about Pentecost or the Feast of Harvest. Or the, here it's called the Feast of Weeks in verse 10. In verse 9, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. Now remember, it didn't precisely say the day to Passover, but it says you shall count seven weeks. It is uh, assuming a certain knowledge. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. And you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male and your female servants, and the Levite who is in your town, and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst, in the place which the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Now, this was about 50 days or so after the feast, after the point of um, Passover. It's sometimes a little indefinite what point at Passover. 
Passover seems to celebrate the beginning of barley harvest, or largely correspond with that in the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Weeks happened at the conclusion of barley and wheat harvest. But they celebrate this, this Feast of Weeks. I also want you to notice this, that within these statements about attending the place the Lord your God establishes, there is an emphasis too on rejoicing. That statement is made that in their feast, they are a time of celebration, they're a time of rejoicing. You see that in verse in verse 11, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You see it in verse 14. And you see at the end of verse 15, a reference to joy. And one of the things that seem to have made this, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not exactly clear how all this worked out. Okay? But it was a time of sharing with the needy. You notice that long list of people in verse 11 and verse 14 who were rejoicing. Your maidservant, your manservant, the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, the widow. Apparently, all of them as you brought your harvest to God and you offered a gift to God. Apparently, some was not only given to God, but also shared among the people. And it was a time, these feasts and celebrations were a time to remember all we have is from God. All we have is from God, and we're going to get back to Him. And also, God has been good to us, so we're going to be good and share with some of the most unfortunate in society, orphan, widow, the stranger, sinners groups that are mentioned in verse 11 and in verse 14. It is interesting to me, in Leviticus 23, when the Bible is giving the instructions about the Feast of Weeks, when it gives that instruction, it says at the end of that instruction, it says, you shall not reap the corners of your field, but you shall leave those for the poor. These feasts were not only a time of celebration before God and bringing gifts to God, but a time to remember the poor, to remember the needy, and to give to them. Now, the Feast of Booths. You really don't have an inkling of when this feast of booze would have appeared, would have occurred from this verse. Verse 13, you shall celebrate the feast of booze seven days after you've gathered in from the threshing floor for the wine day. Well, you might know general time harvest, but, but when was that? Well, Leviticus 23 tells us it was the seventh month and the 15th day. And it lasts for seven days. The 15th to the 21st, there was even a solemn assembly on the 8th day. Verse 6, verse 14, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male and female servant, the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow who are in your towns. Seven days you shall celebrate a feast 
to the Lord your God in the place the Lord your God chooses. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. And then verses 16 and 17 sum all of this up. Three times a year all males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place he chooses. At the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, at the feast of booze. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessings of the Lord your God which he has given you. Did you notice too how many times either the land is described as the land the Lord's giving you or the prosperity they have on the land is what God is giving them Look at verse 5 again. In any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you. In verse 10. A freewill offering of your hand which shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you. In verse 15. God will bless you in all your produce in all the work of your hands. And in verse 17 the same thing. According to the blessing which the Lord your God has given you. Any time of giving to God is a time to remember that everything we have has been given by God. As they are giving to God on these special occasions and worshiping and celebrating these feasts, they are to remember that God is the source of every good gift. That he is the one who has blessed them. And he has given them all that they have. Okay, any, anything there? Any thoughts? You can go ahead. So the Day of Atonement was not one of the three days. It was not one of the three days where they had to go to Jerusalem, no. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily less important. In some of the ways, that is the most important. Because the only day the high priest goes into the most holy place. It's the only day of the year they were called to fast. But it's not to say there weren't other important days or that these are the, necessarily the most important. But these are the days where they are come the place the Lord chooses. Now, I want you to think, too, did you have a question further on that? No, I was just okay. making sure. But yes, yeah, you're understanding it correctly. I want you to think about this place the Lord your God chooses and how that plays in the whole story of the Bible. And there is a huge crowd on Passover around 30 AD. Huge crowd. And everybody that was in that crowd is talking about one thing. The things that happened with Jesus. Remember when Jesus is walking with the two on the way to Emmaus. And they are looking sad. And he says, what are the things you're talking about? And they said, are you the only one present who doesn't know about these things? That Jesus of Nazareth, uh, a prophet we thought was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. We would hope he had redeemed us. So, so all the people had come to Jerusalem at Passover at this time, and Jesus is crucified. 
many of these people would have gone by and next come by at the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. And when they come back in Acts 2, the Bible tells us the Spirit descends upon the apostles and they begin to speak in other languages. The crowd misunderstands it, thinking that they're drunk. They use it as an opportunity to preach about this Jesus you crucified. God is made both Lord and Christ. Remember when you were here last and they crucified Him? He has been raised from the dead. He is our promised Messiah. And as this day with the population of Jerusalem is is swelling because of all the people that are for the feast, they hear the message of Jesus preached. Now, we do not see right there in that immediate sequence where the Feast of Booths fits at the same time, but uh, it does play a prominent part in the story of the New Testament in John chapter 78. John chapter 78. So it does play. So these feasts, knowing these feasts, it's not just a kind of collection of Old Testament facts. It kind of helps tell the biblical story in the most central part of the biblical story. Okay? Let's go to Deuteronomy 16 and verse 18. It says, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment you shall not distort justice you shall not be partial you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous justice and, and really the Hebrew text here has the word justice twice right in a row in verse 20. Justice, justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So verses 18 through 20, you're going to have judges, you're going to have officers in all your towns. These, these judges, these officers, they're not limited to the place the Lord your God is choosing. They're in all your towns. And when they are in all your towns, the requirement is that they judge the people with righteous judgment. And they're given three things in verse 19 not to do. They are not to distort or pervert justice. If a person is in the right legally, then he is to be, that is to be recognized. Doesn't matter whether he's richer, whether he's poor, whether he's liked, whether he's disliked, doesn't make a difference. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe. Now, I read this. And I don't know enough to state this authoritatively, but the very mention of this was amazing to me. I saw a note that a writer, that referred to a writer who has examined all the ancient Near Eastern law codes that we know of. And he said in all those ancient Near Eastern law codes, the only one that prohibits bribery 
is this one. Moses law code. And you would think that's a given in any law code. Because what greater sin could a judge make than to be open to a bribe? If you pay me enough, I'll decide in favor of your case. But here, Israelite judges were told not to distort justice, not to be partial, not to take a bribe. And he goes on to describe that a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. The ones that the bribe is said to corrupt are said to be wise and they're said to be righteous. Apparently, a bribe can distort the vision and distort the words of someone who is even generally a good person and a righteous person. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. What are they to decide on? Justice and only justice. That's what they were to decide. Exodus 23 verse 6 is one of the Verses it says you shall not pervert justice um, as well. Exodus 26, 23 gives instruction for people in court cases. In Exodus 23, 6, the verse that we just read or just referred to, it says you shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in dispute. Let's say that you're... The brother that is appearing before the judge is poor. He is needy. There might be a tendency to overlook him in favor of someone else who is rich and powerful. And the Bible says don't do that. But it's also interesting to me in the same context. The same context. He says in verse 3, you shall be partial. You shall not, you shall not be partial to the poor man in his dispute. You don't decide for the poor person because you feel sorry for them. So when people stand before the law, and I'm, and I'm applying these things to, to our law, but as, as, as our society, it, it wouldn't matter in, in their society whether you were rich or poor, it shouldn't be ours. It shouldn't matter whether you're black or white. It doesn't matter whether anything, uh, the outward things, none of these things are the determining factor of guilt or of innocence. What matters are the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. A fact. Who made that great quote? Joe Friday. I was trying to appeal to our older listeners. And, uh, well, I know you're not necessarily the oldest, um, but I don't think the younger people would even catch that that reference. But, uh, so, in verse 21, you shall not plant for yourself an Asherah of any kind of tree besides the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. Neither shall you set for yourself a sacred pillar, which the Lord your God hates. 
You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or which has a defect, for that is detestable in the sight of the Lord your God. Now, the Asherah and the the Asherah which serves as a tree that represents the female deity or the um, pillar which represents the male deity. All these things were forbidden. To compare 16, 21, 22 to 16, verses 21, 22, remember in chapter 7, verse 5, that Israel was to tear down those kind of things. In 12, verse 31, they were to tear down these kind of things. They tore down these kinds of things. Here in this passage, uh, it says don't plant them. Obviously, if you, that, that comes as a logical conclusion. If, you, if you're supposed to tear them down, don't plant them. Don't use them to worship your God. These things are connected with idolatry, which verse 22 tells us the Lord has. And not only do they not do that, but they are to not sacrifice a blemished animal. I'll tell you what, what catches my attention here. That in connection with prohibiting idolatry, in verse 21 and 22, he mentions sacrificing a defective animal. Maybe that shows a carelessness toward God. The same kind of carelessness that leads to idolatry. And to sacrifice a careless animal is called detestable. A bone. That, that's pretty striking language. Let's try to finish verses 2 through 7. If there's found in your midst, in any of your towns, which the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God... By transgressing his covenant. How are they doing evil? Particularly in idolatry. Verse 3. They have gone and served other gods and worshipped them. Or the sun or the moon or the heavenly host. Which I have not commanded. And if it's told you and you've heard it. Then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true and this thing is certain, that detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out the man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is the man or woman, and you shall stone them to death on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is who is to die shall be put to death he shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst so if anybody in your nation does evil he uses that word evil in verse 2 in verse 5 in verse 7 All those verses use the term evil. And particularly by evil, he is defining that as worshiping and serving another god or worshiping and serving the sun, moon, and the stars. If you do, if you hear the story that someone has done this, and notice all this respect for legal processes. 
In verse 4, you are to investigate this thing thoroughly. You're to research this carefully. You investigate it thoroughly. You don't put someone to death at one witness, on the basis of one witness, verse 6, but there must be multiple witnesses. And the people who bore witness against him are the first ones to lay their hands upon him. If they are wrong, they bear guilt for the death of the innocent person. But if you are, if he's guilty, you purge evil from your midst. Now that phrase was used in Deuteronomy 13 verse 5, which you went over a couple of weeks ago. Do you know that phrase is used in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 13? When the Bible is talking about church discipline, it, it, it seems to quote that idea, you shall put the evil person away from you. I'm not saying this teaches us the method of church discipline. But I am saying we can learn something about church discipline from these passages. About how evil was dealt with among the people. And um, it, it, principles um, are worthy to consider. Lord willing, we'll try to pick up in verse 8 on uh, Sunday. We're going to try to see if we can get through this 17 and 18. Thank you.